to IIEA's Insights series, which is a fortnightly discussion, which is put out in podcast format. Uh, the first discussion of the new autumn term, appropriately, is with uh, Gideon Rackman, who's the chief international affairs writer for arguably the world's most influential newspaper, The Financial Times. Uh, not only uh, does Gideon write about all the major issues of the world, but he's also recently written a book uh, called uh, The Age of the Strong Man, uh, a very readable and entertaining book in many ways, uh, if also a little grim. So we'll discuss that uh, today as well as, as broader changes since then. Gideon finished the book at the end of last year, it came out early this year, uh, and um, some of the strong men mentioned in the book uh, have taken to centre stage to, to an extent that um, even he might not have anticipated when, when signing off the book uh, at the end of last year. Which I suppose, uh, Gideon, and thank you for joining us again at, at the IIEA. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. Um, maybe we would start with the strong man, man who has um, who has really taken centre stage this year, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin. You mentioned in the book uh, that some of the things he had been doing last, last year, such as the poisoning of, of Navalny, um, had marked a new phase uh, in his re regime. Is the invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, part of that new phase? Is it a new phase in itself? And of course, wh where do you think it's going? Thanks, Dan, and uh, nice to be back. Um, well, I mean, I think we're all still kind of scratching our heads and, and trying to figure out how to understand it. And you, you could argue it either way. I mean, I think that it's certainly noticeable that in the run up to the invasion of Ukraine, when all the intelligence services were saying he's going to invade, you know, here are the satellite pictures. And, and I think they also probably had intercepts and so on. A lot of Russian ex Russia experts were saying, no, no, he's not going to invade. We understand this guy, you know, he's been around for 20 years. And um, while he's incredibly ruthless and a risk taker, he, he, he doesn't take crazy risks. And that would be a crazy risk to try and occupy Ukraine. So um, in that sense, that would say new phase. Um, it's, it's a kind of new Putin that we're dealing with. I think on the other hand, maybe, you know, in the way that after, you know, a crime has been committed, you go back over the record and say, well, you know, what did we miss? And you could argue, and I think, you know, reading, I was actually currently updating the chapter in my book on Putin for the, um, for the paperback. Um, and I think I, I wrote at the time in the hardback edition that a lot of what Putin did externally could be seen in the speech that he gave in Munich in 2007 when he essentially rejects the Western-led order, rejects this sort of happy story that um, Russia and the US were equally delighted by the fall of the Soviet Union because it was an oppressive system and says on the contrary you know we're very angry and we feel we've been exploited etc etc and the events that I said were sort of built into that later were the intervention in Georgia a year late in 2008 the annexation of Crimea in 2014, uh, the intervention in Syria in 2015. And I think that maybe one way of reconciling those two stories of, you know, this sudden departure and, and the idea that this was all building up is that probably he gets bold as he feels those things go well. Um, you know, I think in retrospect, a lot of people in the West feel maybe we'd, we were too weak in the previous instances, um, you know, that even after uh, Crimea, um, 
and you know the shooting down of the Dutch plane etc etc the World Cup is staged in Russia Macron and the Croatian president are in the box with Putin at the final um so I think he probably gets the idea two ideas from particularly from the annexation of Crimea firstly that Ukraine will just fold you know it's a huge chunk of territory Crimea and they took it in a week and there was no fighting and so on and I think he thought <clears throat> that it would all go well in within a week they'd be in, in Kiev in fact there are I've heard Western leaders who who've met him I think uh said to me that he had actually said this to them, you know, if I ever chose to invade Kiev, Ukraine would take Kiev in, in a couple of weeks. Um, and then I think that he also thinks, well, I've seen the West's reaction and it's going to be pretty mild, um, you know, that, that in the end they'll go for business as usual. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that he basically has become bolder and therefore a lot of the original anger was then expressed in this final sort of act of invasion yeah you've been in his company a number of times over the years i wonder have you seen you, you know he's, he's tended to be quite a rational actor over his two decades in power but some of some of the rhetoric the, the essay he wrote in july of last year some of his rhetoric seems to be more emotive uh nationalistic obviously the speculation about his time spent alone during the pandemic yeah is there any do, do you detect, uh, even if it's possible from afar to do this, but do you detect any decline in reason, um, a, a less rational individual as he ages? Yeah, you know, define reason. Uh, you know, I, I think that, um, I was interested, you know, when you use the phrase rational actor, he is an actor. I mean, he does perform. And so, you know, uh, the, the first time I was with him, he was very much, it was a group of international journalists. And he was sort of deliberately intimidating. Um, he, he was playing the role of the sort of thuggish leader, um, at times charming, but also able to put people on a, you know, make people feel uncomfortable very quickly. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I've never seen this personally, but again, talking to others, they say that the only times that they had seen him really lose control and st it stopped being an act and becoming emotional was when it became came to the lands that the Soviet Union had lost uh, after 91, and in particular to Ukraine. So there was one international businessman I was speaking to recently who said, who said that, um, that uh, when the subject turned to Ukraine, this was in 2018, that Putin had just begun to rant for half an hour. He said it took him half an hour to regain control of himself. Mm. Um, so this, this was the thing that, that really got to him. And it's interesting, again, you know, some of the oil bosses say that when they talked with him about oil, it was like talking to another CEO, that he had a very, very good command of the market. You know, he was, uh, he's not a stupid man. And, and on that, he really understood, um, you know, in the way that if you were running Shell or Total, you might understand the market. Uh, but, but he also has this other side. And ultimately, I suppose the question we're all asking is where where does this go? Uh, you know, does it drag out for many years? Uh, could it escalate? Particularly, could it escalate to the point of, of deployment of nuclear weapons? Um, well, what's your sense of where 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 it'll end up? Um, you know, I think that he can't back down now. He's not going to um, say, "Well, you know, it was a mistake," or "I'll meet you halfway." I think his regime, his own personal survival is at stake. Um, the optimists, if you um, opposes invasion, which I guess most of us do, think that Russia may not be able to keep it up for very long in the sense that 
they, you know, one of the things he's, the reasons he's gone for this whole special military operation phraseology is to say to the Russian people, I haven't taken you to war. And one of the parts of that is that he won't mobilize. He won't, uh, you know, have conscription. And, you know, if the Americans are right that they've lost 90,000 troops killed or wounded, or even let's say 70,000, well, the original invasion force was only 200,000. So they've taken incredibly heavy losses. So they may not be able to advance much, but it's also possible that they'll dig in, uh, you know, that they'll go for a war of attrition that the Ukrainians won't be able to advance that. Um, and, and therefore, um, you know, he won't fall either. He won't, he won't capture Ukraine. Um, and it won't be a kind of satisfactory situation from his point of view, but uh, he will survive and Russia will survive. And on, you know, on the plus side for Russia, the economic damage to them is much less than we assumed. You know, people are talking about a 15% shrinkage in the economy. They're now talking about 6%. Uh, clearly, they found ways around sanctions. They can get, you know, the, the surge in the oil and gas prices compensated for some of the loss of markets. They can get it out uh, through other ways. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the smarter Russia analysts, uh, you probably know, Sasha Gabuev, uh, who's now left Russia, um, like a lot of them, but he said to me that his vision for Russia, and it was one of the more plausible visions I'd heard outlined, was that it will become like a huge Eurasian Iran. In other words, um, it will be uh, a pariah state as far as the West is concerned, but it will still be a functional state. Um, it will have an economy that's much less well off than it might have been otherwise, but it will it will work. It'll be able to find markets, and it will still be an international force. You know, Iran is able to de deploy troops in Syria. To you know, it's a, it's it threatens its neighbors, and of course, the the parallel is not precise because Russia is that much more powerful than Iran. You know, it's it's a bigger, richer country. Um, but that's the sort of vision: is that um, it won't be it won't collapse, but it won't reintegrate. It's kind of an adversary state now. We could spend the, the the rest of the time talking about Russia-Ukraine situation, I'm sure. But let, let's move on to another one of the strongmen. And you you identified uh, Xi Jinping's um, coming to power and speech you made in 2012 as sort of the beginning of this era of the strong, of this new era of strongmen. Yeah. Um, the Pelosi visit to Taiwan. You extensively discussed the, Taiwan as a, as a global flashpoint uh, in the book. Um, developments since then. Um, you know, things have changed in the book, as you were saying, that um, Xi Jinping felt vindicated by his COVID stance, for, exa for example, this time last year. Yeah. Uh, you know, China's position was looking a lot better than the Western position. It's now gone full circle and uh, Western position looks to be the right one, whereas uh, China has got it wrong in its zero COVID attempts. All, all th those factors, um, the weakening economy in China, potential for a property crash. So since since you signed off, uh, how do you see Xi Jinping's position uh, over the past nine months? Has it strengthened further? Is it weakened? I think it's probably weakened, but not to the point where he's not going to be able to extend his term in office. They announced, I think, yesterday that the, the party congress will be in October. And most China experts I know... Um, Think it's pretty well a foregone conclusion that he'll get his third term and that's just the um as communist party leader and then that will lead to a third term as president of china uh, which will be confirmed next year and then of course the question is, is is it a fourth term is it a fifth term to me all the evidence is that he is digging in really for the for the very long term 
more or less as a lifetime ruler. And I think it's one of the kind of characteristics of this whole strongman model is that these are people who find it very uncongenial to give up power. If they can hang on forever, they will. And that's partly because you become a bit of a megalomaniac the longer you're in power and uh, you build up a cult of personality. Um, and therefore it becomes almost unimaginable to replace the leader because the identification between the state and the leader is becomes closer and closer. The whole rhetoric, official rhetoric is that this person is so brilliant, so indispensable that it becomes almost uh, dangerous to get rid of them. And I think it's dangerous in another sense to get rid of them, which is that they, um, they do things when in power that make it hazardous for themselves to step down so that she has had over a million people arrested in China, um, you know, including some pretty powerful people, senior people in the military. One of his mooted successes is serving life. Um, and so if you go, uh, you yourself are in danger and, and not just you, but all the people who've risen with you, all the business interests associated with you. Uh, and I think that's true of Putin as well, that you know, a lot of the oligarchs are probably pretty pissed off that, uh, you know, by the lost opportunities in the West and so on, but they're very implicated in the Putin system. Um, you know, they may have taken over assets that were, say, stolen from Yukos or Beroshovsky or whatever. Um, so a change in regime is threatening to them as well. And do you see any possibility from any sort of soundings you get that the, that the, that the party in China, which, you know, can claim to have unlike Russia, say, over the past 40 years, can certainly claim more achievements in by with its maximum two-term system uh, and not going down the cult of personality and that the Mao period of such a disaster when it, when there was a cult of personality. personality. Is, it, is it possible that within the party, I know it's a black box, but it, you know, do you see any possibility of, um, of internal opposition uh, ousting him or weakening him to the point where he doesn't go on? Um. I think, you know, it, it is a bit of a black box and, and in, in the we'll we'll probably if it happens, you'll only know the day after when there's a sort of announcement that he's retired because of ill health or whatever. Uh, there are, you know, it, it, sinology is a bit like criminology that there'll be people who follow it very closely and will say, you know, for example, that the prime minister Li Keqiang has been signaling some discontent with the zero COVID policy, uh, that there are others who are um, clearly not on board. But I think that basically, if you look at the kind of vectors of power, he does control the internal security forces. Uh, he does control the army. And these are, are, are the crucial things. Um, so, yeah, I don't see much sign. I mean, as, as, as you, you said, one could, one could see, you could lay out the things that might lead to people wanting to change things, but there's not much evidence that it's about to happen that I can see. And in terms of the Taiwan flashpoint, you know, is 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 that a medium term risk or has it now become a shorter term risk? Depends who you talk to. I mean, I think it's um, it, it's you know it is. Um, I, I personally, I am quite worried by it. Um, certainly, some of the Americans and the Australian sort of security people. Um, do talk about them attempting an invasion within five years. And, you know, I've just been reading a bunch of um, Chinese sources uh, translated uh, of, of recent commentary on Taiwan. 
uh, and it is pretty aggressive, uh, you know, that she has made it clear that this has to be resolved, this can't go on forever. But equally, you know, there are others like Professor Mingxin Pei, who's a kind of leading expert who I interviewed for my podcast a couple of weeks ago. And when I put it to him that it was looking, China was becoming increasingly bellicose, has built up an invasion force, essentially, and, and a lot of Chinese and American military analysts think that they, they might be able to do it. Um, he said, no, you know, that for Xi, it would be such a gamble, because it's the one thing he thinks that could lose him power is a losing war, uh, that he has to keep the rhetoric high, but that he's not, uh, he's not going to roll the dice. But that does slightly remind me of what people were saying about Putin before Ukraine, it would be a crazy risk, he won't do it. Um, moving on to the sort of the strongman who has loomed largest, I suppose, in everyone's uh, minds over the past five, six years, and, and certainly in your book, uh, in the index, a whole page is given over to to one Donald J. Trump. Yeah. Um, putting putting him aside as 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 a, as a personality and an actor for one moment, you, what's your what's your take on on the Republican Party more generally, and and the individuals Ron DeSantis comes to mind of, of people who could potentially be the next U.S. president. Do, do, does somebody like DeSantis pose similar threats to to the U.S., or is he more respectful of of the institutions and the norms that have grown up over a quarter of a millennium in the U.S.? Yeah, well, as you know, Dan, you know, opinion is divided on this. There's there's the school, which I think I'm closer to, which thinks that Trump is uniquely dangerous because of his lack of self control, um, his kind of instinctive authoritarianism. Uh, that no other, you know, that you can be highly conservative, but not attempt to overthrow an election as Trump did on January the 6th. And that that distinction was made clear in, say, the behavior of McConnell and Pence versus Trump, um, that Trump's kind of combination of narcissism, lack of responsibility, the personality cult he's built up around himself, his encouragement for militias, you know, the Proud Boys, et cetera, et cetera, makes him a kind of unique figure. And that if it was DeSantis, people would be throwing up their hands, you know, liberal Europe would be throwing up their hands in horror, but in the same way they threw up their hands in horror, the likes of sort of Jesse Helms or Ronald Reagan or other very hard right Republicans who culturally are just very, very different. But um, there are those, there is another school uh, that says actually, no, you know, what Trump has done is opened up a whole playbook for the Republican Party, which was anyway sort of being developed at local level, uh, gerrymandering um, uh, and, and so on, and that there is a kind of inherent authoritarianism in the way that DeSantis is running Florida. But for me, the evidence for that is quite weak so far. I mean, it's acknowledged, you know, I'm prepared to be persuaded and maybe I haven't been paying enough attention, but a lot of the stuff that is thrown at DeSantis um, is to do with this sort of culture war stuff, you know, the don't say gay law and so on, which may be upsetting to liberal opinion, but doesn't seem to me inherently anti-democratic. Um, but maybe it's just the optimist in me wanting to believe that, yeah, maybe Trump will be displaced and you'll just have a kind of standard, standard issue, hard right Republican, but not somebody who's going to encourage violence in the streets or encourage the overthrow of an election. Um, I mean, I think the other the other thing is, you know, is there how strong is Trump's remaining grip on the party? And we've gone backwards and forwards on this. Um, 
there was some excitement when a poll in New Hampshire so, showed DeSantis ahead. On the other hand, the evidence of the primaries so far seems to be that the endorsement of Trump is still a valuable thing. Um, Republican candidates who are backed by him, you know, famously the loss of Liz Cheney and so on, um, so that his personal grip on the party is strong. And then on the other hand, we now have the raid on Mar-a-Lago. And um, my sense is that although liberals are saying, well, obviously Trump was lying and um, his, his whole defense about the Mar-a-Lago thing is falling apart, that the US is so polarized that people believe what they want to believe and that he won't lose many loyalists over the Mar-a-Lago raid. But we'll see. I mean, it's also possible that it will lead to, um, you know, if he's found guilty of um, mishandling federal documents, I think that can ban you from running for office. So it might be that, that that's just a kind of legal mechanism that, that takes him out of the game. Maybe it would broaden it out internationally. One of the things that sort of always following Italy very closely, as I do, the rise of Berlusconi was, was, was a sort of shock to see this entertainer, something of an element of cult of personality, um, you know, often buffoonish speeches. Um, you know, clearly we've seen it in the US. Boris Johnson is a very different type of prime minister. That there, it's, it seems that despite an increase in education levels and knowledge about the world, voters are more willing to vote for these very unpresidential, um, you know, the, the sort of characters that used to define leaders, this prime ministerial, uh, dignified right. kind of demeanor that one used to always view as being the kind of characteristics of a leader. People seem less interested in those characteristics and more interested in the, whether it's a buffoonish type character, a joking character, or uh, a, a narcissistic haranguer, that these characteristics that we might have thought in the past would exclude people from leadership seem in some ways to be a benefit. Is it, is it you know, any thoughts on what's going on with voter voter uh, desire in the changing for, for how their leaders behave? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Johnson Berlusconi. I think, you know, one of the early signs of where Johnson might fit on the spectrum is when he wrote a cover story for The Spectator in 2003 in praise of Berlusconi and saying, this guy's great, he's, his critics, are, you know, he's much better than any of his critics and so on, despite the evidence of, you know, criminality, lying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that, I, yeah, clearly, um, in the, the you know the strong men covered in my book some of them are in authoritarian systems like a xi jinping but actually probably the majority are in come up through democratic systems um and some of them are yes sort of cartoon characters you know duterte in the philippines who says appalling things you know about having wished it join in joined in a gang rape uh, encouraging people to uh um you know go out and kill alleged drug dealers Bolsonaro in Brazil, who says, uh, you know, that praises uh, people who tortured during the military regime in Brazil, says that he'd punch gay people in the face if he came across them, that kind of thing. These are, um, yeah, um, sort of cartoonishly awful to their liberal critics, but it works for them. And, you know, Trump, I think, was a very gifted, instinctive politician in the sense that he had a sense of what taboos he could smash uh, that would actually benefit him when everybody thought it wouldn't. Uh, you know, and I, I went through that process myself. I remember the first time thinking, oh, well, he's done for was when he said John McCain wasn't a war hero. And I thought, well, you know, this is a super patriotic party country. You can't say that about a guy who was 
but it worked for him. And then he famously said, uh, you know, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and I'd still get votes. Uh, and I think what, so what's going on? I would, lots obviously, but I'd say two things you could pinpoint at. First is that um, deep disillusionment with elites and therefore people who outrage elites and who get elite opinion sort of in a tizzy actually amuse the people who, who are anti-elite and, and they say, good for you, you know, you've kind of stuck it to them. It's a signal that I'm not a member of the sort of namby-pamby elitist group. And secondly, um, and I think that deep disillusion often has economic roots, uh, you know, that the that populism of both left and right rose um, after economic crises, particularly after the financial crisis. And I think, say, in the Philippines or Brazil, where the economy maybe was never that great, although Brazil actually had a good decade before the crisis, um, it's often crime uh, that they will say, you know, ordinary people's lives are being tormented by crime. And I'm, I'm the tough guy who's prepared to actually say what's necessary, shoot people if necessary, you know, not, not to mess around. Um, and then I think the other thing is the rise of social media. Uh, so I don't think it's a coincidence that this age of the strong man is also the age of the rise of social media, because it allows them to uh, get around the gatekeepers, people like you and me, you know, who, who might otherwise have restricted access to the media or, or um, if not restricted it, uh, called them out, you know, said this is a lie or this is unacceptable or whatever. If you, if you communicate directly via Facebook or via Twitter, uh, you don't go through that kind of fact-checking process uh, or, if you like, taste-checking process. Uh, these are, uh, you know, we know what makes a viral post. It's something that, that appeals to people emotionally, um, that, that shocks or outrages or amuses them. And these are people who are specialists in viral, uh, in getting things to go viral by shocking, outraging or amusing. You mentioned Duterte, who's gone, of course, since then, and Johnson's about to go. Um, Bolsonaro is almost certainly, according to opinion polls, if he indeed accepts a defeat. Um, yeah. Would you see any sign that if, if, if things aren't getting better, then they may be getting not getting worse? Well, I, th I think, you know, there is a distinction between the democracies and the non-democracies. I mean, in, in, in a democracy... You know, and unfortunately, it's not a hard and fast. You know, there's there's the sort of democracies, the semi-democracies in the middle, the Turkeys, the Brazils, where Erdogan or Bolsonaro might lose, but whether they'll actually accept the loss uh, is a big, big question. Could lead to um, instability. Uh, or there's the you know China, and I now put Russia in that category. Whether you know the idea of the president losing is just now out of the question. But um, in the democracies, I think. Yeah, I mean, it'll vary that um, Britain, you know, for whatever reason, seems to have rejected Trump, uh, not Trump, but Boris, I mean, because of the, um, maybe because, you know, he attempted to almost claim a presidential mandate when the Tory party came from him and said, look, you know, they didn't vote for you in 2019, they voted for me. Um, but actually, we have a parliamentary system. And um I would like to believe that it was because the innate sense of decency of members of parliament and et cetera, et cetera, they couldn't put up with it anymore. There was an element of that. But I think also they began to feel that he was a loser. You know, Johnson had lost a couple of by-elections very, very heavily. Uh, so, and I think the, re the real distinction or 
perhaps the most important distinction with the Republicans is that the moment the Republicans start to believe that Trump no longer has a grip on their core base, I think they will get rid of him. But um, but as long as that's the case, you know, then they'll be very wary of taking him on. Um, so maybe it just, just just comes back to the voters and how deeper, um, you know, well of support the popular strongman can have. India is another example. Uh, obviously, you know, very different, but still um, a parliamentary system, elections which are not by and large rigged. I mean, there may be some vote buying, but uh, but Modi is very popular, uh, even if he, um, you know, uh, upsets a lot of, of my liberal mates in, in India. Um, men, the, the book is called Strong Men, Strong Man, the right, the, the age of the strong man. Um, Wondering about Liz Truss, who's likely to become prime minister over there next week, and Giorgia Maloney in Italy, who's likely yeah. to become prime minister of Italy in uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, do they tick the boxes to be strong women? Um, we'll see with Truss. I, I, you know, I think she's certainly, you know, it's maybe it comes back to the sort of what the discussion about Trump DeSantis. I would, you know, I hesitated about even putting Johnson in the book, but I did partly because I think that Trump and Brexit were very linked phenomena. There was like six months apart. And I think Trump um, gave Johnson some of his vocabulary, like Johnson has used this idea of the deep state quite a lot, uh, you know, both went out of power. And then when he was uh, lost the leadership, he was just now in parliament saying, you know, beware of the deep state trying to reverse Brexit uh, and and so on. So I think he, he um, he got quite close to the strongman playbook, used bits of it. Trust, not yet. You know, she doesn't, um, she's kind of a populist civil service basher, but she's not yet straight into conspiracy theories. Uh, law breaking, I think, you know, the Irish Northern Ireland Protocol you're well aware of is a big issue there. Um, but, and I think she, she may do something quite radical on that. Whether that then tells you about her broader, have, having a broader contempt for the rule of law, which I think is a characteristic of the strongman leaders. I'm not not sure. So I, I you know, I, I also don't think she's going to do terribly well, simply because I don't think she does. She's not a very good populist. And she inherits a sort of disastrous economic situation. Uh, you know, I, I think any leader is going to struggle to be popular if people's gas bills double in their first couple of months, they're in power. Um, Maloney, very interesting. I mean, I think she would be the first sort of, at least in a Western context, um, populist, strongman leader who's a woman and who isn't, um, uh, you know, descended from an original strongman in the way that Marine Le Pen would have been, you know, uh, she's made it herself. Um, but she seems for the moment to be playing down some of the sort of strongman elements she hasn't for example like Salvini if you're looking for somebody who's a uh, Putin sympathizer in Italy it would be Salvini really rather than her um, she's slightly distancing herself from some of the things she said about Mussolini um, you know when she was much younger um, so so we'll see uh, exactly how, how that that turns out but she's certainly an interesting figure and some of the rhetoric uh, that she is using as far as I can tell, is very similar to the sort of Putin to Trump to the British Conservative Party playbook in the sense that it's very going very big on LGBT issues, particularly trans issues, saying that, you know, liberals have lost their minds, you know, they can't even tell the difference between men and women anymore. And that this sort of deep cultural conservatism is, I think, is very important to the whole 
strong man phenomenon. Um, sticking with Europe and, and the sort of two other um, liberal right regimes in Poland and Hungary, clearly they've taken very different positions on, on the invasion of Ukraine and have very different relations with, um, with Moscow. How do you think that will play out, particularly in the wider rule of law debate within the EU? Well, um, yes, I mean, they were definitely protecting each other, you know, in the run up to this war and, and um, they are now very on very different pages. Um, the optimistic take would be that this gives the EU an opportunity that they can isolate Orban, put him under pressure um, because he will no longer have the protection of the polls and they, they can perhaps use um, the Poles' heightened sense of threat um, and need for European unity to persuade the Poles to, to kind of at least meet Brussels halfway on some of the rule of law issues. Uh, you know, that's possible. But I haven't been, to be honest, I haven't been to Poland for a while, but I, I'm not convinced that, that, that uh, even if they law and justice play it down for a while, that they will suddenly become a kind of mainstream, you know, Christian Democrat style centre-right party. I just don't think that's who they are. Um, and so I think it's going to be much messier and more ambiguous than that. You're not going to have this sort of access of authoritarianism, um, Poland, Hungary anymore. But I don't think that the law and justice will suddenly become a liberal party. And I think it'd be very interesting, you know, if you have a sort of Salvini, Maloney coalition in Italy, what will their relationship be with Orban, for example? Because on issues like migration, on issues like LGBT stuff, they're quite similar. Uh, for the moment, Maloney is not taking an Orbanist line on Putin, but as we were saying, Salvini has. Mm -hmm. So um, the EU could be in a very kind of slightly weird, fractured state where there's no clear core. You'll have a sort of hardline Nordic bolt uh, group for whom confrontation with Russia is, is the center of what they're all about. Um, and who are taking the initiative on that. You'll have the Franco-German traditional uh, core, but which are sort of somewhere in the middle on that, slightly being dragged along on, uh, oddly enough, on Russia. Uh, but then what if you have a sort of, where does Italy fit in? Does it, does, it, does it become part of a sort of populist right group, which is now suddenly stronger because of, of the emergence of a major government like Italy? And, and how influential do you, do you see Orban? I mean, I see particularly the US right um, brought its its uh, one of its big events to um, yeah. to Hungary recently. Do, do you think, like you know, he's no idiot, um, and he clearly ha has a view, his illiberal democracy view. You know, is there is there an exportable element to to his to his views beyond just a sort of instinctive nationalistic reactionary kind of uh, hard right position. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of the weird um, aspects of the modern world is the way in which this man who leads a country of 10 million people has developed this global status. So that as you point out, I mean, Tucker Carlson, who is really kind of the voice of Fox Trumpism, moves his entire show to Budapest for a week to highlight um, Orbanism as a model. Um, Orban is then invited to speak at CPAC uh, in, in the US and treated like a conquering hero. And um, I had a very interesting conversation with a woman called Kim Lane Shepley, who's a professor at Princeton, who's a specialist on Hungary, but more particularly on the rule of law. And she argues that actually, if you look at the legal doctrines that the 
US right is developing to basically try to roll back uh, democracy. Um, she says that they owe a lot to Hungary, that they're learning quite explicitly from the Orbanist playbook on things like how he would, to, would restructure the relationship with the courts, packing the courts, um, how you continue to have elections, but you so gerrymander the whole thing and you that and prevent uh, the wrong people from voting, etc. And that Orban is actually an inspiration for them, uh, both in a sort of technical and a cultural sense. Well, one of the things that struck me in the book was the, the focus very much on the liberal right, um, mm -hmm. like Hugo Chavez, who arguably is the sort of first strawman of the post-1989 era, um didn't get much of a much much of a discussion and maybe bolsonaro got a lot more than amlo in mexico yeah um Melichon got i don't think any mention while le pen got some and, and and reading the us i sort of got a, got a sense that 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 as if you had come back maybe 10 or 15 years that not that nothing had changed in democratic politics where i i would think most people would would agree that there has been a shift within the democratic party to the left as well Though some people say that they don't see a threat from illiberalism on the left. What's your take on, on illiberal leftism and the, and the trajectory it's on? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that um, actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'll quote Steve Bannon, who, uh, although a bad guy, can sometimes say quite interesting things. And he his argument was that after the financial crisis, you had both left and right populism rising. Um, and that in America, left populism was Sanders and right populism was Trump. In the UK, uh, left populism was Corbyn and right populism was Farage, Brexit, Johnson. Um, but I think the reason that I concentrated on the populist right was that they seem to be more successful um, at the moment. You know, um, it was it was they who came to the fore in Europe and in the US. Latin America, as you suggest, has a strong tradition of populist leftism. Uh, and, and that may be coming back, actually, with some of the presidential elections recently, uh, you know, in Colombia, I think Peru, Chile. Um, but um, outside of Latin America, for the moment, it seems to me the populist right clearly is uh, the more powerful force. Uh, illiberalism of the left, sure. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a great fan of cancel culture, etc. Et I think it, it does exist, but I don't think it has that anti-democratic element that um, that Trumpism has. And, you know, until recent years at culture war things, I really didn't pay much attention to them. But, I, you know, I hear more and more people raising it and talking about things like cancel culture. And you can't say that, you know, the, the traditional reactionary right has been known as reactionary because it's tended to to react. Yeah. Where the left has, has always had a more, you know, coherent intellectual program of of, you know, revolution, rebuilding utopian society, whereas the reactionary right is more just, you know, leave us alone and uh, don't, don't disturb us the way we are. I, I'm increasingly wondering the extent to which the reactionary right and the rise of the strong man is, is partly uh, not just, you know, you mentioned economic factors, et cetera, but also a, a reaction against um, the, that, that illiberal leftism. Yeah, I think, well, put it this way, I think it's incredibly helpful to them <laughs> um, that uh, because partly because the social changes, things like gay marriage have come in very fast. You know, I mean, I remember I was at The Economist 
uh, when it was proposed as a cover story. And to their credit, they put it on the cover in the mid 90s. But I was sort of, you know, kind of just thinking, God, where's this come from? This since, you know, and, and 15, 20 years later, it's, you know, it's it's mainstream. Uh, and so that's kind of rapid change. Uh, also, uh, things like Black Lives Matters and so on um, will inevitably leave a lot of people behind or a lot of people upset. And then they feel that not only am I upset, but I'm going to be penalized if I say what I, I used to think, which was OK, and it's now not OK. Um, and that's absolutely manna from heaven for uh, for the far right or the populist right, whatever you want to call them, because they can say, first of all, you're you are actually being oppressed. Uh, and secondly, uh, the left has lost its marbles, you know, that it's gone crazy and we represent the old verities. I think that's that's extremely powerful for them. And so I, I think identity politics, uh, although it's potent among the, the young, uh, I, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's easy for maybe us as two older guys to say, oh, it's obviously crazy. Uh, you know, I think I think that for a lot of young people, it, it's very important. Um, but I do think it's my my sense is it's it's not helpful for 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 the left, but it's very, very hard for them to to shake off, you know, so that if you look at in the UK, um, I think Starmer is sort of paralyzed on issues like trans rights because you could tell, you know, if he wants to appeal to the red wall, obviously he doesn't want to take too radical an issue on a uh, radical stance on that kind of issue because it plays into the hands of the right. But on the other hand, if he, if he says sort of JK Rowling type stuff on trans issues, he'll have a revolution inside his own party, um, which for, for whom these issues are absolutely critical. So um, the left just kind of tries to, you know, mainstream or centre centre left politicians. I think just try to avoid this, but their their opponents won't let them avoid it. I think it's it's a real problem for them. And then just more broadly, I think that you know, certainly looking at the Trump phenomenon, I, I thought that although economic dislocation was a large part of what drove um, Trumpism, I think it was when he was able to associate that with racial fear with fear that whites were in uh, were being losing jobs affirmative action that kind of thing that he was really going to town uh, so that if you look at the polling evidence which i cite in the book it's the people who not only say that the economy is bad but who also say that whites are being discriminated against that is 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 the core trump voter um and uh you know so so i think that that kind of if you combine ethnic anxiety, uh, which I think is key for a lot of these populists with with some level of economic insecurity. I say it's key for populists because obviously you look at Orban, you know, the whole idea that Europe is going to be flooded by Muslim immigrants, uh, even Modi in India, where Hindus are 80%, but there's this, um, they play up this idea that Muslims are outbreeding uh, Hindus and, and so on. Um, and uh, actually Netanyahu in, in Israel, uh, he was actually quite an important figure, you know, has a close relationship with Orban, which is kind of ironic given that Orban uses anti-Semitic rhetoric. He's also, Netanyahu was also guest of honor at Bolsonaro's inauguration. But the same thing, it's a sort of ethno, for ethnic view of democracy. This is, you know, he, he legislates to make, to put it into law that Israel is a Jewish state. Uh, and it's all about demographic balance and protecting the, the the true citizen from the outsider citizen 
Uh, I can't let you go get in. You touched it briefly in terms of Liz Truss taking over, but uh, we're all braced here, I suppose, for further Brexit-related ruptions uh, around the protocol. In the book, you described it as an extraordinary erosion of the UK's control over its own territory, which should have been anathema to any sovereignty-minded nationalist. Yeah. Um, how many sovereignty nationalists uh, minded nationalists will there be in the next cabinet and how sovereignty minded a nationalist is Liz Truss and where do you think how uh, you know how far will the next British government be willing to go um on on the protocol uh up to and including the whole with the, the whole um uh, agreement with the EU uh being at risk yeah well I mean the reason I said that is that you know um I remember actually being in uh in Brussels at the time when the first idea of putting basically a customs border down the Irish Sea was floated. And the British were saying, well, obviously that's, you know, we can't possibly accept that, that's ridiculous. And that was May's position as well, because she took the sort of classic sovereignty position, you know, we can't have an internal border. Um, and Johnson, because I think basically for reasons of personal ambition, had to sort of say, you know, May's deal was rubbish, I'm gonna come up with this new oven ready. So he accepted something that even some of his own advisors said, you know, this is uh, there are real problems with this if if you really believe in sovereignty um, and and sort of in a very Johnsonian fashion said we'll fix it later or it doesn't mean what it says you know that was his that's the way he 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 works so now I think that trust has a dilemma you know that the sovereignty if you, if you believe in sovereignty as she and Frost appear to. You've got to do something about this and equally it's something that uh, the, the hardliners and the Tory party expect you to do something about and you've said you'll do something about it. On the other hand, uh, there are all these other considerations, relations with the EU, I mean okay maybe they're prepared to take put those into a further downward spiral. Relations with the US, I mean which I think they would not be amused if we cause a crisis over this and also just the economy, you know, uh, do we want to you know, risk a trade war with the EU at a time when we're facing an economic crisis? And is how much political capital is she prepared to spend on this? Maybe she thinks it'll be good for her because it'll rally the male and the sun, et cetera, et cetera. But I think a lot of people in Britain will think, you know, do we really need this as well? Um, so I wouldn't be prepared to, I think she'll play it very tough initially, push it hard then maybe I hope she'll compromise, but we'll see. Gideon Rackman, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, I think it's been a very interesting and wide ranging talk. And I hope uh, I hope uh, those who've been uh, listening and who will listen, um, it helps set you up for a um, for a an autumn term in which uh, there'll be no shortage of things happening. Uh, Gideon, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. And that winds up our IIEA Insights episode with Gideon Rackman, Chief International Affairs Commentator with the FT. Make sure to keep an eye out for our next episode on British politics and the prospects of the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. I'd also like to mention that we'll be hosting a major international energy conference on October 10th, details of which are available on our website. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>